Hello and thank you for joining us on the third episode of Frost, a Canadian Cold Case podcast. Today we'll be looking at something a little bit different than we normally do. We'll be looking at three cases instead of the standard one. Thing is, with these cases, there is a lot less information than would support a 20 to 30 minute episode. Also, each of these cases are following a Jane or John Doe and will also be from between 40 and 100 years old. Also, we'll be speaking on these cases in a form of chronological order. However, the chronological order chosen will be from the times that they were discovered not from the time that the crime actually occurred. We'll be looking at doing an episode like this every so often, just to let some of the older cases that don't have as much information get some airtime as well as the ones that have a lot more information. Today's cases come from three different parts of Canada, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Ontario, and span from the early uh, 1900s to the mid to late 70s. For the first case, we'll be going to a small village to the east of Ottawa, Ontario called Castleman. It's approximately 55 kilometers to the east of the downtown core of Ottawa and not that far away from Cornwall. It was here on May 3rd, 1975, where a local farmer found the remains of a woman that was between the ages of 25 and 50 years old. She was found a short distance from a Highway 417 bridge that spanned the Nation River. The police would be called and it would soon become apparent that the death was not accidental. She had a TB coaxial cable wrapped around her throat and her hands and feet were bound by neckties. As the woman did not have any identification on her, she has become known as the Nation River Lady and has gone on to be one of Canada's longest lasting mysteries. She was described as being between 5 feet 2 inches tall and 5 foot 3 inches tall and weighing approximately 100 pounds or 45.5 kilos. Her body had a scar indicating that she had her appendix removed and she had considerable dental work done. She wore partial dentures on both her upper and lower jaw. But while she had extensive dental work done, her natural teeth uh, were in pretty bad shape. Most of her natural teeth were in need of fillings. She had a noticeable gap between her front two teeth, and stains on her teeth suggested she could have been a coffee drinker, smoker, or both. The dentures that she was wearing originally had been believed to be manufactured outside of Canada, but recent information suggests that the type of dentures she was wearing had actually been commonly used in southern Ontario. The medical exam after the body was found showed that she had never given birth or carried a pregnancy and that she had webbed toes. But it was also apparent that her fingernails and toenails were well taken care of and painted bright pink or red with nail polish. She had also had 
dark brown hair, but she had recently dyed it a reddish blonde. She was found dressed, and it is described that she was a woman with a modern fashion sense. Her body was clothed in a long-sleeved navy blue bodysuit, which was a popular garment for women that came in many styles, all of which fastened at the crotch with snaps to keep the garment neatly tucked in. Unfortunately, none of the clothing or the items found with the body really shined any light on where she came from. Most of the items that she wore or was found with came from a variety of different parts of Ontario and Quebec. From there, we come down to the description of uh, what she was tied up with. As previously mentioned, uh, her hands and feet were bound with ties, neckties specifically. The ties are described as a blue tie with small Canadian flag emblems known as the Canadian tie, a blue striped silk tie, and a red tie with yellow patterns. A couple other pieces that were found with the remains was a curtain rod runner that was found in her left armpit. Also, the cable used to strangle her was a flat plastic covered TB cable with splatters of grey paint. It was manufactured in Renfrew, Ontario and sold in Eastern Ontario and Western Quebec. I mentioned earlier that it was a coaxial TB cable, but reports are mixed on that. And in the end, uh, the remains were completely wrapped in two green fringed towels that measured 70 inches by 48 inches, a red and white Irish toast tea towel, a red and white J-cloth brand towel, and an orange, yellow, and green towel with flowers on it that measured 70 inches by 40 inches. Pictures of the items that I could find will be posted on our Facebook group. Unfortunately, that is all that we have for a description on the Nation River Lady. Although it's pretty thorough, it, she still remains unidentified to this day. The police have been doing a pretty thorough investigation to try to find the identity of this lady and dissolve the murder. Uh, including running DNA and doing facial reconstruction, which was made easier by a somewhat early discovery of the body. Uh, according to unidentified uh, Wikia, the body condition had a recognizable face, so that made uh, doing the facial reconstruction a whole lot easier, I'm sure. During the investigation, the police found blood on the bridge and recent reports say that the body may have been thrown off the bridge as early as 1974. Hopefully as time goes on, the DNA that they did collect will be able to be matched to somebody, maybe through GED Match or another one of the DNA companies. According to some reports, the DNA Doe Project is currently working on the project. If you believe you may have information that may lead to identifying the victim or the killer, the Ontario Provincial Police are seeking the assistance of the public and ask that you contact the Ontario Provincial Police at 1-888-310-1122 or the Nation River Lady Dedicated Tip Line at 
591-2296. Next we'll be moving ahead a couple of years and looking into a case from Alberta. A man who was trying to fix a septic tank on his property found that he was requiring a pump and remembered that there was a septic tank attached to an abandoned house on a different section of his land, so went to collect it. There he came across a grisly site, found a person floating in a 1.8 meter deep septic tank. What the property owner had stumbled across was a male who was between the ages of 26 and 40, between 5 foot 5 and 5 foot 7, and weighed between 145 and 165 pounds. The police were called and what they found was horrific. Investigating officers described his death as one of the most vindictive and sadistic crimes that they had ever encountered. At this point, I have to give a warning about listener discretion. Uh, descri the description that will be given is graphic. The body got removed and a autopsy was performed. During the autopsy, the doctor found that the individual had been tied up and beaten. And while he had been beaten, he had been repeatedly burned using a small butane, blowtorch, and cigarettes. He had also been sexually mutilated before he was finally shot in the head and the chest. He was then rolled up in a yellow bedsheet tied with nylon rope and dumped headfirst into the septic tank, which had been partially filled with water. At which point the killer or killers then attempted to dump limestone into the tank in order to dissolve the body and speed up the rate of decomposition. However, when quicklime is combined with water, only a small degree of superficial burning will occur, with a large amount of the body tissue becoming dried out, resulting in the body being relatively well preserved for the time it had spent in the tank. Even so, the remains were so badly mutilated that it took an Edmonton medical examiner months to determine whether the remains were male or female. The one thing that was found was that septic tank Sam still had all of his teeth. Some fillings had, and had signs of recent dental work. The dental records that they were able to uh, garner from the body was sent to over 800 dental practitioners in the Alberta area and even got them published in the Canadian dental magazines nationwide, but it led to no leads. He was eventually laid to rest in an unmarked pauper's grave in an Edmonton cemetery. This, however, would not be the end of the story. His body would be exhumed in 1979, and a forensic pathologist and a forensic pathologist from Oklahoma was brought in to reconstruct the skull in order to help with the identification. Dr. Clyde Snow took numerous measurements of his skull and bones and input the information into computer program which indicated that septic tank Sam was likely of Aboriginal heritage and approximately 35 years old. DNA samples were taken and a facial reconstruction was posted in various newspapers around the country. Unfortunately, that did not lead to any identification. It is believed that he may have been a transient, a migrant worker, or otherwise not a long-term resident of Alberta.
Based on the clothing that will be described later, he is suspected to have been a construction worker or farm laborer. It was also likely that the killers knew the area well and chose the remote location in the belief that the body would be found for a very long time. However, it appears that the police estimate that the body had only been in there for a few months. The physical description of septic tank Sam is that he had a medium build, he had dark hair, his eye color is unknown, measurements of his hands suggest that he was right-handed. Unfortunately, it's not a lot to go on. He was also dressed in a blue Levi work shirt with snap buttons, a gray t-shirt, blue jeans, gray wool socks, and brown imitation wallaby shoes. Again, pictures of what I could find will be available on the Facebook group. It's unfortunate that there's not a lot to go on, but the police have been basically bending over backwards trying to solve this case. They have spent upwards of a million dollars and have exhumed the body twice since it was originally found. If you happen to think you have information on septic tank Sam, the investigating agencies are the Chief Medical Examiner's Office in Alberta. The agency's phone number is 780-427-4987 or toll-free within the province of Alberta at 310-0000. The agency case number is 7690-77. The final case we will be looking at today is one of, if not the oldest, cold case in Canada, even though of the three cases it is the most recently found. The case I'll be referring to is from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and was found on June 29, 2006. The victim has been dubbed the woman in the well and was found on the west corner of 108th Street and Central Avenue in the Saskatoon neighborhood of Sutherland. While excavating a pair of fuel tanks from an old gas station, a work crew discovered a woman's body. She had been murdered, wrapped in a burlap sack, and stuffed into a barrel, then thrown into a well. The Shore Hotel once sat at the site where the woman's body was found. With help from other experts such as Carol Wakabayashi, I apologize if I totally messed up that name, the woman in the well, uh, it was determined, had been killed sometime in the early 1900s. Her body and clothing were relatively well preserved due to the mixture of water and gasoline from the gas station that was later built on the site. The woman, who's believed to be between the ages of 25 and 35, was Caucasian and stood about 5 foot 1 inch tall. She was most likely middle class and a stylish dresser. She appears to have been put into what is referred to as a gunny sack, and then the suspect used a saw and uh, cut her shoulder area in order to fit her into the barrel, and then threw the barrel into the well. Uh, her arm was almost severed from the shoulder. Included in the barrel with her was a man's black vest and trousers. They were found on top of the victim. Thankfully, recently, people have come forward with possible leads and have even taken DNA tests to try to identify the 
lady in the well. It's not really likely that a killer will be identified as it's been close to 100 or 110 years, but hopefully we can find a way to give her her name and maybe full face back. Recently, investigators uh, were able to do facial reconstructions, uh, including a 2D and a 3D replica of the victim. So hopefully that will also help. Those images will also be added to the Facebook group. The reason I found it important to do this episode was the killers didn't just take the victims' lives. They took their identities. They took who they were. They took a chunk out of their families in more ways than one as their families haven't been able to figure out what happened to them. Hopefully podcasts like this will be helpful in raising awareness and help bring that needed information to their families. But that draws this episode to an end, and I thank you for sticking it out with me. I know that some of these episodes have been rough, and I hope that I am getting better. Tonight there won't be any weird Canadian criminal facts, but I will be offering a couple of podcast suggestions. The first one will be The True Crime Enthusiast by Paul, and the second one is My True Crime Obsession. Both of them are done in two different styles, and both are extremely well done and totally worth the listen. And if you do, tell me in from Frost sent you. In two weeks, I'll be back with a normal episode, if you want to call it normal. And we will be returning to a similar format as episode two. Uh, We will have, possibly even have some promos for you. So keep tuned and have yourself an excellent evening. Thank you.